0: First Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Peter's addressing Christians who in various places and in various ways are facing hostility for following Jesus. It is the desire of God that Christians act differently and speak differently than those who do not call him Father. And their lives are difficult because they choose to daily live out their faith. As we'll see, a primary way this difference is expressed is in the way that, that they love one another and hence the way that we love one another. That makes an impact. So look with me, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word which was preached to you. This is God's word. We should probably just go ahead and face it. Like it or not, social media platforms are now the new public squares. They are the new... Marketplaces, so to speak. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and I'm sure many other platforms that I'm not aware of that the kids are on these days. These are the places where public conversations are now happening. Social media is where the ideas and ideologies are debated and hashed out and and hammered and criticized. And we are by now probably used to, at least I am, how politicized and polarized. Social media has made our conversations, at least online. Having said this, uh, there's still tremendous potential for the Christian to be a witness on social media. For many people, they will only hear about Jesus or read a verse out of the Bible if someone shares it on the Internet, because that's where you find them. Unfortunately, the social media arena is also a battleground for Christians. Seemingly forgetting that we are exposing ourselves to a watching world, some of the nastiest battles on the internet occur between those who claim to be followers of Jesus, disagreeing on secondary points of doctrine. Now, don't get me wrong. Debates over doctrine are healthy. Uh, They challenge us to re-examine what we believe and to hone in on what we believe in light of what the Bible teaches. But of all people, we as brothers and sisters need to fight fairly, with grace, and with compassion toward one another. And we often don't find that happening on the internet. How can we expect to neutralize a culture that's hostile already towards the message of Jesus if we are hostile toward one another? We can't. And so Peter shows us in this passage not anything about social media but very applicable he shows us how to love one another well and first what i want us to see is the glory of loving one another the glory of loving one another i'm sure by now that you've picked up on the fact that peter has written a very practical book his concern is that the believers that he's writing to learn to navigate life in a world that is largely antagonistic to their faith in other words They were living in conditions that are very similar to ours. Culture was was pushing back against their values. Therefore, so much of what Peter communicated to his audience has to do with how to apply God's truth to present circumstances. After all, we, like them, live in the real world and we deal with real people. We don't choose the terms of our witness. We are witnesses where God places us. In spite of you and I only being able to live in the present moment, we understand that God exists outside of time. He is eternal. That means that God takes in the past, and the present, and the future in, in one sweeping glance. He knows and sees all of it all the time. But what God is doing in the present moment, in your life, in my life, is not disconnected from the past or from the future. And so in verse 20, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter reaches back into eternity past, and he reminds us that he, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The Father's plan to send the Son into the world to be born as a human baby, to live a perfect life, to die in place of our offenses against God, and then to rise from the dead to give us spiritual life, that plan was not an afterthought. God did not suddenly devise this plan once he realized that Adam and Eve had made a mess of things and that we were going to follow in their stead. Jesus Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the creation is what that's telling us. God determined why Jesus Christ would come and when He would come. We read here, in these last times. Ever since the resurrection, we've been living in the last times. That means that there is an urgency to our lives and to our witness. What God devised then, he is now fulfilling at this point, and he is using you and me as inadequate and as weak as we are to accomplish his eternal purposes. It was determined that Jesus would come the first time for the sake of you who are believers in God. That's what verse 21 says. Did you hear that? We, the church, right here, are central to what God is doing. To what, in fact, he has always purposed to do. And this is the difference that makes. Whatever difficulty, whatever trial Whatever form of persecution, passive or active, whatever hostility you may face at this moment, does not surprise God. In fact, it perfectly accomplishes what he determined to accomplish before the foundation of the world. And that should be a tremendous encouragement to you. You see, the non-Christian views the events of their lives, the mishaps and the successes, the gains and the losses, all as just random and disconnected you've been there before everything is just chance and luck. not only was our way of life before Christ futile if we're honest we viewed much of life as simply meaningless yet not a second of it was or is and when you're in a situation when everything seems random and meaningless and everything seems against you remember that Jesus Christ appeared for the sake of you. Notice in verse 21 also what Peter focuses our attention on. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. The resurrection is is more than just about Jesus coming back to life. Yes, it's about that, obviously, but it's also about Jesus receiving glory from his father. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verses 5 through 6. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What does that tell us? Jesus, as the Son, shared the glory of the Father from all eternity past. They honored one another in love the glory of this love between the Father and the Son, outshining the brightness of the Son, the perfection of love as expressed in this perfect, eternal relationship. And then Jesus shed his eternal glory to become a man. He laid it aside. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7 read, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So that was Jesus' descent, the shedding of his glory. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he received back the glory that he had voluntarily set aside. This is, according to Jesus, as he praised to his father in John 17, the glory of which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is now presently glorified with the Father once again. What does that mean for us? Well, the end of verse 21 tells us, so that your faith and hope are in God. Because Jesus received back his glory with the Father, we anticipate experiencing that glory ourselves. We've talked about, as we've gone through 1 Peter, how we live in the tension between faith, that is what's happened in the past, and hope, that is what will occur in the future. Jesus goes on to pray for his disciples in that same prayer in John 17, this time verses 22 through 23, this is what he prays. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's saying a lot there. But here's what I want you to hear. We anticipate experiencing the glory that exists between the Father and the Son. In fact, we've already begun to experience it. Did you catch that as I read? As Christians, we partake of the glory of the fellowship between the Father and the Son. We are brought into the glory of their relationship. And the glory shared between the Father and the Son is manifested, catch this, through the love we have for one another. The world will see the glory of God when we love one another well. What an awesome responsibility that we've been given. If people are to see the glory of God apart from their own personal experience with God, they will see it in the love that we have for one another. They will see it in our love for one another because our love for each other is an expression, I just read this, an expression of the glory shared by the Father and the Son. We as the church are always bearing witness to eternal realities. Far from our love for one another being insignificant or optional, it's more eternally significant than you can imagine. And it's no more optional than the fellowship that exists between the Father and the Son. This love for one another was one of the most powerful testimonies of the early church to a watching, hostile world. In the first and second century, there were no welfare programs. There was no social safety net. There weren't hospitals. There were not orphanages. The early followers of Jesus, they took care of one another. They took care of their widows and of their orphans. They loved each other by meeting the needs that existed in their midst. Because that's the only way those needs were going to be met. The reason that we even have hospitals and orphanages and charities is because the whole idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is baked into our Western culture. Why is that the case? Where did secular society pick up these ideas? They picked them up from the Christians. They didn't exist before the church. Our love for one another matters. Our love for one another draws from the fellowship of the Father and the Son, and it returns glory to them. The way the earliest followers of Jesus loved one another wedded the appetite of those outside the church to want to experience that kind of love. This is the glory of loving one another. Next thing I want us to see is the way of loving one another. The way of loving one another. Look with me at verse 22. two. First Peter chapter 1 since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. We are called to love all people. Yes. But specifically, I just read it, we are to love the brethren at one another. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five: by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. If you have love for one another, all men will know you belong to me. So there are many ways, obviously, that we can influence others for Christ, but Jesus is clear that our mutual love for one another will be so unusual, so against the status quo, so counter-cultural, that people will stand up and take notes. They will be astonished. Their hostility will be disarmed by our love for one another. How are we doing with that? Loving one another is not optional. And it goes beyond the walls of our congregation. We are called to love all of our brothers and sisters. We must, therefore, be intentional about gathering with and supporting other Christians in our community. This is why I'm so big on pushing our community services and our times of prayer together as a community. Because remember, Peter's not just writing to one church in just one area. He's writing to multiple churches in multiple areas. They are all called to love one another as we are as well. And so the first way that we read in verse 22, to love, the first way to love is to love sincerely. That is, Love must be without hypocrisy. Biblical love is based on the character of God. There is no duplicity in God. God's love is always consistent with who he is and with how he acts. And he expects the same of his children. We are we are rightly turned off by hypocrisy. The non-Christian is rightly turned off by hypocrisy. If you're anything like me, you would much rather someone say to your face what they say to others about you behind your back. Sincerity, even if it's hard to hear, is preferable to hypocrisy. In order for love to be meaningful, it must be sincere or genuine. If I came home every evening and told my wife I loved her because that's what I'm supposed to do, she would eventually pick up on my lack of authenticity. But if I tell her every evening I love her because I want to tell her that and because I mean it, then she's likewise going to pick up on my sincerity. Only when love is sincere is it meaningful. Now, being sincere does not mean that we tell each other whatever pops into our head in the moment. It does mean that we care enough about one another to avoid being fake. We deal with one another in sincerity and truth. And this is the opposite of how people outside of the church often deal with one another. The default position of the heart is too often to deal with others with duplicity, with two-facedness. When you're only looking out for yourself, you will tell people what they want to hear in order to get ahead. You may have no intention of serving someone else, yet you will act like to their face, like you are in their corner. And it's all for the purpose of looking out for one's own interests. Not so with us. It can't be that way with us. We put each other ahead of ourselves. Loving like this, with sincerity, will cause people to take notice. It is counter-cultural love. More than ever before, people are craving something genuine. The seeker-sensitive and mega-church movements of the 90s and the early aughts, what they gave us was very polished, very sleek, very professional worship service experiences. Did God use them? Is God still using them? Yes. He is. But these churches, unfortunately, also gave some people a place to hide. Countless churchgoers attending services week after week never really got to know those who were around them. And so then to try to counterbalance this came along the, the, the small group craze. This was smaller groups meeting in homes during the week, parts of these larger churches. And, and the intention was to give the opportunity for meaningful fellowship beyond a Sunday morning spectator experience. And that, for the most part, worked to good effect. Now studies show the millennials... And especially Gen Zers want something more authentic when it comes to church. Many of them grew up uh, the children of, of Gen Xers who were at the forefront of the seeker sensitive and megachurch movements. And so their children are craving something more genuine and in reaction to this sanitized worship experience where you can easily avoid getting to know people, easily avoid serving your brothers and sisters in love the younger generations are more and more preferring a smaller church setting with a wide age range of individuals that offers the opportunities to actually get to know people. They desire more than previous generations to ask questions and to have discussions and to feel like they are seen and known. Now, we all want this, obviously, And it's in the church where we should find people who are willing to genuinely and and sincerely love one another. Again, because this kind of love disarms all sorts of hostility. And people will sense, you better believe, people will sense whether or not we possess that kind of love. The second way Peter tells us to love is fervently. Fervently. This word fervent, verse 22, it means to love earnestly to love with intentionality. Sincerity has to do with quality. Fervency has to do with intensity. Love each other genuinely, yes, but also love each other intensely, which is stepping up the ante from sincerity to fervency. What does this do? It adds an emotional component to our love. We need to love one another with strong and deep desire. And this love must come from the heart. Because why? The heart represents the real you. That's how the Bible uses the word heart. It means the bundle of your desires and emotions and aspirations. That's your heart. That's who you are. So we now know what's expected of our love for one another, sincerity and fervency. What difference does this quality and intensity of love for one another make? Well, it impacts those around us in ways that nothing else quite can. Remember the words of Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The life of God within is manifested in love for one another without. So at this point, hopefully, you might be thinking, how can I possibly love my brothers and sisters with a sincerity and fervency that's commanded by God. If you're thinking that, you're on the right track because you cannot possibly do it. And Peter knows this. Which is why he tells us how it is possible. And we find it at the end of verse 22. Where we read, "Love one another from So let's consider now the source for loving one another. We saw the way to love one another, now the source for loving one another. The only way that you can love from the heart with genuine and increasing love is if your heart's been transformed. The reason you can love is because you have a new heart. That's the only reason. That's what Peter says, verse 22. Since you have, since you have done something. What is it you have done? Peter's writing to Christians. They have done something. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Now obviously, you cannot purify your own soul. Purity before God is exactly what all of us lack. The Old Testament shows how an Israelite could receive temporary purity by going through various rituals that were laid out in the law. But none of these things actually changed the heart. They just gave temporary access to the worshipper into God's presence. But these rituals that had to be performed over and over again. Why? Because the heart remained the same. They couldn't change the heart. God's after your heart. And he knows that we cannot change our own. And so he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The heart that's in your chest is not the same as the heart that's described in the Bible. But there are similarities. That's why we use the word heart for what's beating in our chest. And so this illustration works because both your physical heart and your heart of desire, your heart that describes the real you, are incredibly influential. You go to the doctor and he tells you that your heart is damaged. And he tells you it's going to stop beating sooner rather than later if something drastic is not done. So you need more than a new diet. You even need more than having a few valves replaced. You need a new heart. So they put you on the transplant list. One thing is for sure. If your heart ceases to work before you get that new heart, then you're going to die. You need a new heart. And once you receive that new heart, it will do for you what the old heart could not. It's going to supply the blood adequately that your body needs. It's going to keep you alive. It's going to give you strength that you didn't have before. Now, without that new heart, you'll not be able to do anything strenuous. With a new one, you can resume all of your regular activities and hopefully even more than you could do before. We each need a spiritual heart transplant. And that's exactly what God promises. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verse 26. As the prophet looks forward to the day that Peter now says is a reality, Ezekiel writes Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's the promise. Notice how the purity we need to stand before a holy God is tied in with the new heart we need as a source of that purity. And then Peter takes up this exact idea in verse 22, of our text. How do you receive this new heart? By verse 22, obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. What is the truth? We need to be clear on what's being said here. The truth is the gospel. Capital T truth, what Peter is talking about. Obedience to the gospel, obedience to the truth. To obey the truth, therefore, is to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the news that Jesus lived the perfect life that you could not live. That he died an undeserved death that you and I should have died. It's the news that whoever places their trust in Jesus, believing that he died in their place and rose from the dead to give them new life, and to become Lord of all, that person who trusts in him receives a new heart. Those moral impurities that kept you from God's presence are canceled because Jesus became morally impure in your place on the cross. On the cross, the only righteous man to ever live took upon himself your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, so that in him we might receive the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, you are purified by God. And what does this do? It changes your standing before God. Entering his presence is no longer a temporary condition based on certain rituals done in the Old Testament. It's based on what God has done for you in Christ. It's based on a purity that you have had applied to your account. But we need even more than just a right standing, as, as necessary as that is. We need the ability to love as God loves, and this is why the Christian is given a new heart. And technically, this is what's called conversion. Conversion. The Lord changes your desires and aspirations so they are like His. You receive a new heart. You're changed at the most fundamental level of who. Work of the Holy Spirit. The only reason the text says you purify your soul, you purify your soul, is because you are the only one who can make the decision to obey by believing the truth of the gospel. But now, if you're a Christian that you have a new heart implanted in you by God based on your decision to believe the gospel, what do you do? You love sincerely because this is the way that God loves. And now your heart. His heart. The reason, the only reason that we can love each other fervently and sincerely, that is, deeply and emotionally and intentionally, is because if you're a Christian, your love flows in increasing measure from a heart cleansed and made new by God. You have received a heart transfer next thing to see is the power for loving one another. The power for loving one another. We saw the source, his new heart, and now the power for loving one another. The other reason that you can love sincerely and fervently is because you have power that you did not have before you became a Christian. Specifically, new life. Listen to verse 23. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, That is through the living and enduring word of God. When you were born the first time, you entered the world physically. You were alive physically, but you were spiritually dead. To be born the second time is to receive spiritual life. You come alive to God. This is called regeneration. Regeneration. When you become a Christian, you not only receive a new heart with new desires from God, you receive new life, that is spiritually connected to God. And both a new heart and new life are crucial for our understanding how to love one another well. We know that a seed sprouts and produces life. And even though a seed grows into a plant or a tree, that plant or tree is destined to eventually die. The same is the case for a human life. We, too, are born of a seed. The idea here is that the father begets a child by the seed of his sperm. The child produced is alive, but destined to perish physically. Because of sin, everyone who is born is going to die. However, there is also a seed, not a human seed, but another seed that produces life that is imperishable. There is a seed whose life it produces will never die, and that is the seed of God's Word. When you hear the gospel and you respond in faith, you receive the life of God. Remember the promise of Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So again, not only do we receive new desires that reflect God's desires, we receive a new spirit that is made alive to God. That is spiritual life that cannot die. The Bible calls it eternal life. One seed is perishable. It's fragile. It's destined to produce life that will die physically. The other seed is imperishable. Not only is it spiritually alive, it will endure to eternity. And this is the life that's produced by God. And this is the life that every Christian possesses. If you are a Christian, you have a new heart. You also have new life. The reason you can love one another sincerely and fervently is because you are not called to love out of your own strength or ability. You are called to love based on what God has done for you when you believed his word. You have new life that contains the strength and vitality of God himself. And so now we love one another out of the strength and life that's implanted in each of us by The difference is the power. If you are the power behind your love, you are going to quickly exhaust your reserves. If God is the power within you, you have an inexhaustible supply. If you can reach the end of God, you can reach the end of your ability to love. But since God is unending and his power is inexhaustible, so is your ability to love one another. It's like if you volunteered for a major relief organization, and they send you to an impoverished country where the need is great. People are suffering, and people are starving. Their circumstances have plunged them into the depths of despair and depravity, and you are assigned the task of starting a feeding program to take care of this vast need in this particular area. Only you are not given any funding. The expectation is that you use your own money. And of course, you can help a few people for a little while in this way. If you have a little more in the bank, you might help them for a little while longer. But eventually, your account is going to be exhausted. There's only so much you can do with your limited strength and reserves. So after beginning, and then realizing the impossible task that you've been given, you discover that an extremely wealthy individual has put his billions at your disposal. Changes things, doesn't it? Not only that, but he's going to supply all of the help that you need for this food distribution. Suddenly, your position is the exact opposite from what it was. You now have access to unlimited funds and unlimited assistance, which means you can carry out your task. Because someone else has provided what you need but did not possess. The command to love sincerely, and fervently, is impossible. We can try, and we can maybe make a decent job in the short run at doing so, but if we're to continue, we need resources and strength outside of ourselves. And this is what God provides. He will not love for you, but he will love through you. You still have to distribute the food, but you have the funding behind you. God gives you access to his very life and strength because you are a Christian. Because by virtue of being a Christian, you are eternally connected to his life. You have life in him. And knowing this should make all the difference. Even as knowing you have the resources behind you to feed hungry people would make all the difference. So you can choose not to love from a renewed heart and a renewed life. You can try to continue to love in your own strength, but you will fail. So why not believe in what God's provided? By faith, step out and love with the strength and the vitality that he gives. Trust in his inexhaustible Reserves of life and strength. Finally, I want us to see the potential for loving one another. The potential for loving one another. To drive home the living and the enduring quality of God's word, Peter quotes in verse 24 from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Your text might look a little different starting in verse 24 because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Let me read this. This is a quotation from Isaiah 40 verse 8. All flesh is like grass and all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If you were to go back and read all of Isaiah chapter 40 from where this is taken, you would discover what is happening. In that chapter, most of the inhabitants of Judah have been exiled to Babylon. This is their punishment for centuries of breaking God's law, particularly for worshiping idols. But God has promised that he's going to bring his people back to the land of Israel again. At this time, Babylon is the strongest, the wealthiest, the most ruthless kingdom in the world. To look upon Babylon with her wealth and her power and her military might is to see a seemingly unshakable kingdom, one that will continue to conquer, and one that will have no end. Who can stop her? It looks impossible. We know from the vantage point of history that Babylon was eventually stopped. She now lies in ruins under the sands of modern-day Iraq. In fact, as a kingdom, Babylon was long gone by the time Peter wrote his letter about 2,000 years ago. But in Isaiah's day, in the prophet Isaiah's day, Babylon appeared undefeatable. Yet Isaiah predicted the judgment of God against her. She's only a kingdom of men. All flesh is like grass. Grass is here today and it's burned up tomorrow. It's temporary. The glory of Babylon was magnificent, but in reality, only the glory of a flower. What's beautiful today but it will wither and fade and it will fall to the ground. And all of this came to pass. But, and this is Peter's point in quoting Isaiah, the word of the Lord, endures forever. Isaiah, way back then, was saying that God's word will surely come to pass. Babylon will fall. Judah will return to the land of Israel. God will restore his people. The word of his promise endures forever. But this is what is astounding. This same unfailing word. The word of God's promise and power. The word of life in the gospel. Is the word. Verse 25. Which was preached to you. Not only that. But it's the word that you believed. And when you believed it. The life of God with all of its strength and power and vitality and promises and endurance and eternal nature was implanted in you. God has always been faithful to his people and he's always been faithful to his word. And now Peter is writing to his audience that God is going to be faithful to you who are living in the midst of a society that's steeped in idolatry and immorality. If God preserved the faithful in Babylon, then he is going to preserve those of you who are scattered across the Roman Empire. Rome looks like an unshakable kingdom, but she too will come to an end. We know that. We've seen that. Besides that, God will surely preserve his people. And the message for us is that God will preserve us. As well, The explosive power of the life of God resides in you, if you're a Christian. We see this in nature all the time, but we miss the wonder of it. You place a hickory nut in the soil, and in a few years, it transforms into a mighty tree. Think about that. All the explosive power of that tree lay dormant in that seed. The potential was all there. The seed just needed the right conditions to reach its potential. All that you and I need to love one another fervently and sincerely lies within. It was implanted there by God himself. It was implanted there the moment that you believe the gospel, a new heart and a new life containing the explosive potential to which You were given full access. The life of God within is manifested in love without. You want to neutralize the hostility of people around you? Show them what it means to love with sincerity and fervency and begin here. Begin with your brothers and sisters. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you also love one another even as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. The only way we can love one another is because Jesus first loved us. So allow that love that Jesus showed on the cross to be your motivation to love one another well. Jesus laid down his life for you. There's no greater expression of love He received the judgment of God on your behalf. He forgot about himself to the point of death in order to love you. Let's show that kind of love to one another. Allow the love that's been implanted when you believed in Jesus' death and resurrection to be the love that empowers you to love each other well. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the challenging reminder of your word. We are called to be a people of love, and that starts with one another. Lord, we can't expect to impact the world around us if we're not loving each other well. And so we ask for your grace to help us to do that. Give us those opportunities and help us to step into them. Use us as a church that you might be glorified, that we might share that.